Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Welcome to NBC. If it's your first time with us, we're particularly glad you're here. Um, go ahead and get your Bibles open to Mark chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today, Bible, Bible app. Um, either one will get the trick done. And I, let me go ahead and say to you, Happy New Year. I haven't had a chance to say that to you yet. Um, Nisha on the first, but it's good to be back. Happy New Year to you. And um, I hope that this is the best year you've ever had. I really do. And I hope that if it's uh, a year, last year was particularly just brutal for you or challenging for you or whatever, uh, that, that you turn the corner this year. And I hope that uh, if last year was just amazing for you, then congratulations. And my prayer is that that continues for you as well. But if I have some pastoral advice for you, here it is. There is nothing that you can do in this year or the next or the one after that that's going to fundamentally improve your life more than drawing closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that will do uh, more for you inside the, the factors in your life than, than, than listening to the words of Jesus and doing what he says. And so let me encourage you not to waste the opportunity that you've got to have the best year that you've ever had, and in particular to make this the year that you grow closer to God than you ever have in your entire life. Because it is possible, and if you seek him, you will find him. You will find him. Two of the earliest games we play as little kids. One is peekaboo. Uh, the rules are very simple. You cover your eyes, and you don't anymore. And you just say peekaboo. Uh, and then on the other, kind of the adult equivalent of that is like hide-and-go-seek. When maybe peekaboo is usually played with like a baby or somebody like that who can't really move or get around or things like that. Uh, but it, it's effective. Hide and go seek is when everybody kind of gets mobile. And that ranges from the really simple ones. If like it's a, a toddler and a mom in the house or whatever, uh, they go ahead and play around the house. And it's not that complicated. And I, they're very grandiose versions of this. Uh, you know, I remember playing one uh, when I was in college with dozens of people in a dark mountain forest uh, where you, you were uh, at one point blindfolded and you didn't even know where you were, who was out there looking for you, so you feared everybody. I mean, complicated versions of it. There are versions of it in life. And I want to be very clear at the outset of this sermon where we're talking a lot about games, that what I'm not saying is that the spiritual life is a game. It's not a game. It's an adventure, uh, but it's not a game. Games are things that are for fun. Uh, the spiritual life is much deeper than that. And so I'm using games as a framework in illustrations from games to apply to the spiritual life, but they aren't really the same. You know, Jesus would use birds and coins and uh, flowers and things like that to illustrate his points, and that's what we're going to do with games. Uh, but as we approach the spiritual life, we've got to understand this is kind of playing for keeps. Like, that's the thing that matters the most. And as Jesus is going to say in our text today, you know, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. And that does you no good whatsoever, that the point of this life is to glorify God in every way, shape, and form. So with that in mind, let's talk games, shall we? We love our games. The board game industry here in our country, $7 billion we spend on board games. That's risk, monopoly, uh, things like that. Uh, and if you're going, yeah, you know, board games really aren't my thing, you're probably a gamer of some kind. 85% of us play games of some kind. Uh, you've got casinos. Uh, some of you have hit the casino. I won't ask you for a raise of hands. Uh, but, you know, some of you, your nail marks are still on the carpet as somebody tried to drag you out of the casino playing slots or doing whatever. $54 billion a year we spend at the casino. Uh, if that's not your thing, maybe video games are. You, we spend about $96 billion 
dollars on video games. That's growing every single year. And it, a lot of us play games. 78% of them play those kinds of games. Now you may be going, that's a lot. Are you sure? Yes, I am. Uh, in fact, the gamer, the average gamer that you picture in your head, uh, maybe a 14-year-old skateboarding hoodie-wearing boy, is in fact not the prototype. The average gamer is actually 35 years old. 35 years old. 15% of video game players are over 55. All right? So the next time you run into your grandma, just walk up to her and say, Grandma, I know what you're up to. And see what she says. <laughs> Old people play video games too. This also might surprise you. Half of video game players are female. Half. So again, you have this, this picture in your mind that people who play video games are just one way, shape, or form, but they're not. So if that, none of that has captured you yet, today is Sunday, and we will watch a lot of games today. Here it's football time, and so we'll watch uh, NFL, we'll watch college football, and during the bowl season, we just got done watching the World Cup, baseball season's on the way, NBA season's underway, and a lot of us will watch a lot of games or play a lot of games. Then think about all the games that we play that don't actually generate any revenue. Now, sports is $500 billion. Okay, dwarfs everything else by a long way. $500 billion, guys. That's, that's insane. That's almost 10 times the economy of California in sports. All right? So you got that. But if that's not it, think about the free ones, the ones we do, the pickup basketball games, the games of charades, games of playing cards with a friend or playing hide-and-go-seek or capture the flag or pin the tail on the donkey or you got a pinata at your birthday party or you, when you can't decide who's going to do what or who's going to go first, we do this. I'll beat you. Hit me up in the lobby. We'll see who wins. I will take you down. All right? We love playing games. It doesn't matter what it's for. It doesn't matter when. It doesn't, we just love games. And since most of us play them, uh, it's very easy to take a look at some of the more classic games that we're all familiar with and be able to take pieces from those of the rules and the ways that we win and lose at those games and bring them over to looking at real life, like the stuff that really makes us win or lose or have abundance or real poverty in life. There was a gentleman named Yukai Chow. I heard him give a lecture once. He's the leading gamification expert walking the planet. And so he's an expert in helping companies figure out ways to hook us on certain types of games that get the result they want. Uh, there are a few examples of the kinds of things that, that he would talk about. And he, he said they do it using their eight core drives to human beings. They have kind of these eight big values. And most game companies try to hit one or a lot of those as they design their games. So when it came down to trying to help kids uh, check in and log their pain, kids who had cancer, they had a hard time getting them to do it just because, so they created an app with a game attached to it. Uh, and basically, the more faithful you are at logging your pain, uh, the more uh, thoroughly you do it, things like that, you rise in the rankings. And they saw a tremendous impact of that in the life of kids with cancer, being able to report that stuff and get it in. Uh, those of you who are going, well, yeah, but not me. If you've ever had a fitness tracker on your wrist, you have an Apple Watch, 10,000 steps a day. Uh, you have your little game that goes and you try to make sure that you get all your steps in over the course of the day. Or uh, you might be like my, my watch, which I'm not wearing today, but it congratulates me when I stand up. Um, 
And if you're at that, you know, low of a level, I mean, I've, I've always thought about what the meeting was like when somebody said, I know, let's make it congratulate them when they stand up. So that everybody feels applauded every day for just simply standing up. Um, you get a little more serious, the utility companies got involved. There's O-Power, which is a, a utility app that's used to comp- so that you could compare your use to your neighbors. Looks like this. Uh, it'll show you how much utilities you've used, and then your efficient neighbors, which are probably like the people who are on vacation. That's pretty low use there. Uh, but then there's you. And so you can feel good about yourself because you're not in that bottom bar there. But you kind of want to go to the green bar, don't you? You're kind of like, yeah, I'm going I'm to see if I can get up there somehow. I'm going to see if I can use less. Well, the first town they tried this in, they saved the, the uh, 200, if you monetize it, $250 million of utilities, causing people to use less. They made a game of it. Um, they were trying to figure out how to get people to slow down in their cars, so they created the speed cam lottery. Uh, this happened over in Sweden. Volkswagen sponsored it, and the idea was we want people to slow down, so we'll put a camera there. If you speed through it, it will take your picture and find you. If you are below the speed limit, it will take your picture and enter you into a lottery where you will win the money from the fines of the people who sped. <laughs> Isn't that a cool idea? So all of a sudden, everybody's trying to go slow, and if you go through, you're like, ah, oh, and it finds you, and then you put the money in the pot. But every time you went through below the speed limit, you thought to yourself, oh, I'm going to be entered into lottery. So what they found was there started to be a traffic problem by this, by this camera, right? The unintended consequences of people wanting to play the game. Uh, one of my, it's a little draconian, but one of my favorites is this bad boy, the shredder clock. Um, so you get the idea. You put a $100 bill in there, and if the alarm goes off and you hit snooze, it shreds the $100 bill. Uh, and if you're going, well, that's all right. It's just money. Then uh, put your wedding photos in there or, or uh, your, 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 um, get your teenager's driver's license and put it in there if they can't get up for first period math and see what happens. If, if you hit snooze or if you don't get to it in about 10 seconds, right? Gamification. Uh, churches have tried this at times. Um, we like to have fun. We don't try, intentionally try to make games because we, we kind of think that, um, that Christian life is supposed to be fun and abundant, and, and that has its own fun to it when it's done right. But if you make it too gamey, then it comes across like it's not a serious thing, that we're not dealing with, with stuff with eternal impact, which we are. So somewhere in there, there's the joy of the Lord, the fun that comes with uh, rejoicing and having fun. And we just did a whole series on joy right before this. So I hope you understand. If you go to church here for any length of time, you'll understand. We love to have fun here. Having said that, let me say this. We are playing for keeps here. The spiritual life is not a game in the sense that, oh, you know, I lose a game of Monopoly. Not that I, I don't, I don't lose at Monopoly. I'm awesome at it. But, but if, if, if I were to lose, I'd feel bad for 15 minutes and I would move on. There's really no cosmic impact. There's nothing that, that makes me a lesser person or whatever. You just lost a game. And that's what makes games games. They don't really matter at the end of the day. In many cases, you'll have another one. There'll be another season. There'll be another board game. You'll play another hand. Today we're going to look at where the Bible starts, the foundational stuff, and we're going to begin with chess. Chess is a, one of the oldest games. 
one of the most popular games on the planet. And in chess, there's one goal, and it really is similar to what Jesus is going to say in our text today, that above all, uh, it's about the preservation of the king. Chess is got cool pieces, the rooks can go up and back and side to side, the bishops can go diagonal across the board, the pawns are kind of useless really, but there's a lot of them, so you have to kill off a bunch of them to get there. Uh, The horses, the knights as they're called, go L-shaped patterns around the board, and so your job, you go and you kind of wipe out their pieces and go after their king while they're coming at your king, and you try to defend your king. But what Jesus is going to say is that there's a piece on the board, essentially, that matters more than all the others put together. The spiritual life is like chess. If the king is alive and he's on the board, you win. But if he's not, you can't win. Here's what Jesus says to his followers in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And then get this. This is the key. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world? The whole world, but lose your own soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? So in chess, the king matters most every day in every game. Um, The king's kind of an unimpressive piece on his own. You know, he can move one space in any direction. But it's he that determines whether you win or lose. I used to beat kids in chess all the time when I was younger because they thought, like many immature people do, that having the most pieces on the board makes you the winner. It's not. Whether your king is left on the board is what determines whether you win or lose. So they would often go around and make a lot of careless moves trying to get my pieces, thinking that that would somehow win the game, and they would leave their king exposed. You can win a game of chess in two moves. I'm going to show you how. Take a look at the screen right here. This is how to win in chess in two moves. First of all, you have to be playing as black, and this only works if your opponent moves their pawns in a certain way. Let's say they move their pawn to the F3 square. Then you move your pawn to the E5 square. Then if they move their pawn to G4, move your queen to this square, H4, and that's checkmate. The white king has no spaces to move to and no other pieces to block the queen's attack. There you go. Two moves. That's all it takes. You know, Jesus tells the story, it's called the parable of the soils in another part of the, the New Testament where he talks about the different kinds of seed and where they fall. Yeah, there's one kind of seed and it falls over here in the rocks, another one falls among the thorns, another one falls on the good ground. And, and he talks about how different types of seed get choked out or they flourish depending on what happens. But they, the difference between the kinds of seed is where the ground on which they fall. And in two of the three cases at least, The issue is they get snuffed out quickly. Checkmate, two moves. And it's not because they didn't have a a chessboard full of pieces still. They left the king exposed. The part that really determined the whole ballgame 
They were careless. They were reckless with it. If Jesus were talking chess, he might say, what good is it for you to save your queen, rook, bishop, and pawn and lose your king? Because the king matters the most every time, every game, every day. Secondly, put the king first in every move you make. In life, just as in chess, every move begins with an understanding of where the king is. If you're going to win at chess, the thing you have to do is whenever you're moving, I don't care if it's a pawn, a queen, a rook, a knight, whoever, you have to go, okay, where is my king? And when I move here, what does it do to my king? You look at every move you make through the prism of the king. Am I leaving him exposed? Uh, can their bishop come and take him out? Or is it, am I in check, what they call check, which is like you're basically your warning shot that, hey, you're in danger. You know, every move that you make is supposed to be that way. It's similar to the biblical concept of walking in the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord not meaning necessarily all the time I'm shaking my boots wherever I go. It's saying that everything that I do is done in light of the greatness and glory of God who I revere and I respect. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. It's the Gerbers of wisdom. It's, it's the smashed peas, the smashed bananas. It's not even, you know, the black belt level stuff. It's, it's the most basic tenet of Scripture. Walking in the fear of the Lord is how you become wise. Not walking in the fear of the Lord is how you become a fool. Move over to the New Testament, and it becomes those who hear the word of God and do, does what he says, those are the wise people. The fools are the people who hear what he says, and they don't do it. They're like people who build their house on the sand, whereas the other people build their house on the rock. In life, we must always make our decisions, set our priorities through the prism of the king, and we don't move anywhere or do anything until we consider the king. We put God first, to put it another way, in every single aspect of life. And that means to walk in the fear of the Lord is to hear what God says and do it. And among that are the things that is the stuff that he says, don't do this. Don't do this. So we put to death then anything that threatens uh, the lordship of Jesus or might put the king in jeopardy, so to speak. So we're going to talk for a moment about the S word. Uh, the S word is sin. Sin is, uh, oh, falling on tough times these days. We don't talk about it a ton in church as much as we used to, at least. Uh, and there's some pluses to that and minuses to that. I think you can go too far with it to where you spend your whole life playing defense in life and you never get to the offense part. But I think there's also uh, unspoken in the life of most Christians is that there are sins that we kind of keep as pets. Uh, we kind of like them. We don't think they'll hurt anybody, so we'll feed them, keep them around because we like them. And as long as we don't think they're going to hurt anybody else, we just kind of we just kind of allow for them. But sin in the Bible is something that brings genuine affront to God and really throttles the work of God in a person's life. That's how it's seen. We can make the mistake of thinking that when the sacrifice of Je we, we accept the sacrifice of Christ for our sins and place our faith in Christ, that that absolves us of all of our sins to the point that God no longer cares what we do because by the time that we do it, it's already forgiven. It's a heresy in the New Testament. It's called licentiousness. 
It's just the idea simply that I go on sinning so that grace may abound. I don't really care about what I do anymore uh, because uh, God will take care of it anyway, right? A recklessness spiritually to, rather than walking in the fear of the Lord and saying, okay, is what I'm about to do, the attitudes of my heart, the way that I think, the way I act, is that in alignment with a reverence for God that I claim and I profess and a life of somebody who's going to be able to live victoriously here uh, on, this, on this planet? So um, let me proffer this, and you, you, let's dwell on it for a while. Uh, I think sin for many Christians can be the biggest and is the biggest hindrance to their victory in this life. What, what if this was the year, the, the one that you've got, you know, and you know what it is. Um, you know, it could be lust. It could be anger. I just fly off the handle all the time. It could be uh, I'm wildly materialistic and greedy. Uh, it could be, um, you know, I've got a, a significant problem with pornography or gambling or alcohol or substance of some kind. You know what it is. But what if this was the year that instead of keeping it like a pet so that it flourishes year after year after year, this was the year you went after it. You attacked it like it was the enemy of everything that you hold dear, because it is. That's the way the Bible sees it. I'm talking about the Goliath of a sin. The one that you know is a problem for you. And I know people think sometimes wrongly, oh, I could... I could stop if I wanted to. One of my mentors used to, he was famous for asking the question, then why haven't you? To addicts. And the reason is you can't. You think you can, but you can't. What if this was the year that you chose to repent of all of that and to legitimately make a war against it, walking in the victory of God as you did so? And believing that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. But you really got serious. And the way, the way that you judged how your spiritual life went this year was the extent to which you were able to repent of and walk in victory over that particular sin. When Joshua and Moses both, God's getting ready to do a big thing. Uh, in one case, it's uh, give the Ten Commandments to Moses. And in another one we're going to look at here for just a second in Joshua chapter 3 when Joshua, they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River. And the Jordan River at the time, don't picture like a little creek, picture like the Mississippi, okay? Big river, big deep thing. And so to get to Jericho and enter the promised land, to be able to fight the battle of Jericho, they have to get over the Jordan River somehow. Well, when like the, everybody just was walking around with a, with, a, with a kayak over their shoulder, they had to figure it out. And so God shows up and says, I'm going to stop the waters like I did for Moses. I'm going to part them and you guys are going to walk through on dry ground. So he tells Joshua this, gives him some rules for it. Now Joshua there could have said to them, hey guys, get a good night's sleep because we're going to need our energy tomorrow. And he could have said, you know what, um, eat your Wheaties. Make sure you eat right because it's going to take a lot to get over the Jordan tomorrow. But he doesn't. You know what he says? Sanctify yourselves. Purify yourselves. Get right with God, is the way we might put it today. He says in Joshua 3, 5, Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. The way you get ready for God to deliver something big for you 
clean hands, pure heart. Now, our staff will tell you, it's a fairly regular occurrence, I'll either use the phrase, stay blessable, or we will talk about it in similar terms. Sanctify ourselves. Something big's coming up right before Christmas Eve. We don't want anything to get in the way. Special attention paid. Okay? And, and that's the hard part is it's kind of like uh, dust. You know, sin can kind of gather like dust in the house. You don't even notice that it's happening. Um, if, you, if you guys play Risk, the board game, we were going to do that one. The series we're not going to after all, but... But in risk, you know, you do, a really good risk player goes softly and slowly. They're willing to take five, six hours to beat you. If they try to charge at you right away, they're likely to lose. They'll overextend themselves. But your buddy's been over here stashing armies in Australia, one or two per turn for three or four hours. And now all of a sudden, it's like, where did he get 100 troops from? Well, he's been doing it a little bit at a time. Sin is very similar. It's like dust. It kind of forms. And a person who's not regularly kind of renewing that idea, I want to be pure God. I'm walking in fear of the Lord. So whatever it is that's getting a foothold in my life, whatever it is I'm keeping like a pet, whatever it is that I'm, I'm doing that might do anything to throttle the work of God in my life, I want to get rid of it. And I don't kind of want to you cannot stop me from making constant war against this thing. That's what honors God. And that's what Joshua says here in Joshua chapter 3. Moses says the same thing to the Israelites before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Sanctify yourselves. Get ready. So let me give you four areas to do this in real quick. These are the big four um, in our world. Um, and this, is a, this requires you to kind of surf through and do the introspection and be honest with yourself before the Lord as you do this. Understanding the end goal here is not, hey, let's all be depressed as we walk out of here, but that, no, we want to walk in the kind of victory that God has for us. In order to do that, we've got to sanctify ourselves. We've got to allow the Spirit to do its work in our lives. Big four. One, money. Uh, Jesus says it. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Uh, it is the chief rival to God in most people's lives. So that means I ask questions about God. Um, am I greedy? And look at these as like a dashboard. Like you get a credit report and it says, hey, here's your, um, your payment history and the balances on your card and all these going together to making up this score. These are kind of the big four. Money, greed. Am I, am I greedy? Am I materialistic? Do I envy people who have more than I do? Uh, when my friend gets a new car, do I get mad or do I, am I happy for him? Or do I not care? Um, when I see somebody on Instagram uh, post their latest vacation uh, to there, and meanwhile, I've been sitting at home in my sweats eating soup and, and uh, you know, binge watching some lame Netflix show for the third time, uh, they're off in Puerto Vallarta or whatever, having the time of their life. And how do I feel about that? Am I generous? Do I give the way that God has asked me to and called me to? Do I, do I have compassion for those in need or do I, am I angry at all of them for being needy? Because it makes me feel judged because I don't want to give to them. And so I'm really angry at myself, but I, it manifests itself as anger toward them. Money. Number two, sex. Um, pornography. Thought world goes on up here. Um, emotional unfaithfulness to your spouse, flirting with people, um, 
weaponizing sex inside of marriage. I'm mad at you. Therefore, um, uh, I'm going to deprive you of, of uh, what a, a healthy marriage would have in that regard. Um, you're sleeping around. You're, um, you're not taking seriously that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and not your own, but bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God with our bodies, the Scripture says. Can you be honest with yourself? Three, relationships. Family, friends, and enemies. Sometimes they're all three (laughs) at times. In the Lord's Prayer, not only does he talk about sin, he talks about yielding, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Forgive us our sins. What's the punchline? As we forgive those who sin against us. It's supposed to be a given that when we call on the grace of God, we extend grace to others. You just came off the holidays. I'm sure it was very tough, and rightfully so for many of you. But at the same time, maybe this is the year that you get proactive about healing that wound or allowing God to heal those wounds inside of you. The Cold Wars stop that the aunt you haven't spoken to in 20 years, the ex-husband you despise, the, um, the person that, <laughs> if they were lying, they're dying, uh, and, and you had the only cure, you'd really think it over before you gave it to them. You know, that, that you just are so hurt or angry at what they've done to you or somebody you care about that you despise them with such a pure hatred that you know it dishonors God and you know it makes you unhappy deep down. So you walk around with this low-grade fever of sad or angry or frustrated all the time. Maybe it's your parents and they hurt you in some way when you were growing up and you need to get something off your chest. You need to say what needs to be said and you need to release it, let it go, forgive as God forgave us. Not saying it's easy. I am saying on the dashboard of faith, if you're looking at sin and where it gets its, its place, the unforgiving servant parable that Jesus tells is terrifying, frustrating, and it makes me mad. Because there are people that I'm asked to forgive that I haven't done anything to. So why should I have to forgive them? And, and, and I didn't do anything to them. Yeah, but I'm doing something to God by not forgiving them. And when I walk in the fear of the Lord, that's what matters most. So I have to, and and that's not something you do once. That's something you do every single day with most of those kind of situations. You have to re-forgive. Just like you have to re-sanctify yourself on an ongoing basis, you have to say, you know what? Uh, You are 100% jerk, and I I mean, I have to be your best friend, but I, I am going to make it a conscious decision by the grace of God to forgive you for what you have done to me, to my, my loved ones, whatever the case may be, I release it. And so I won't return evil for evil. I will overcome evil with good. And in so doing, heap burning coals on your head. There's a scripture here. Vengeance is his, he will repay. I let it go. Are you honest with your family and your friends? You tell them the truth. You're willing to tell them 
hey, I've been hiding this from you. Hey, you know, those kind of things, right? Fourth, this is the one we overlook a lot, ironically, is mission. The question here is, is my life about the same things that the kingdom of God is about? Are my priorities aligned with the kingdom of God? When I wake up in the morning, am I thinking about things that God thinks about that are at the front of his mind? So how do I go to bed thinking about the kind of things God wants me thinking about and how do I wake up thinking that way? And then how can I run that thread throughout my entire day? So that when I'm in the workplace or whatever and I'm running across coworkers, fellow students, my teachers, whoever, that my concern is not just for um, me getting the A in the class or whatever, but I care about them as a human being because God cares about them as a human being. It means um, that I care what happens to and with and among the church I'm a part of. Uh, it means that I care as a parent my, my primary focus is the spiritual development of my child. Uh, it means that the mission of God for me as a husband, uh, part of it is making sure that I'm doing everything I can to help uh, be a good partner spiritually to my wife, encouraging her in the way of the Lord as well. Versus, hey, we didn't fight today. God wants something higher for us than that. Question is then, okay, when we fight, do we honor God in how we reconcile? Or do I drift back into friends, enemies, family category and say, okay, well, that's the way you feel. We're done. If that's the way you feel, if you're going to do that, then let me tell you something right now, okay? You ain't going to enjoy the Cold War here. I mean, Russia and the U.S. had nothing on what is about to take place for the next 10 years in this house. Okay? I mean, you laugh in the front, but y'all are going to be married someday, and you're going to know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the people in the back know. <laughs> but that stuff can ice over, man. I mean, you can get inches and inches and feet of ice over every rooftop in your neighborhood. Is that, is that really as good as it gets? Like, or is there another way? Well, when I'm looking at everything that I do through the prism of the king, then I hear these words and I accept them as gospel truth. Proverbs 4, 23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And a heart that is surrendered to God acts out the things of God and it determines the course of your life. A heart turned away from God ignores the things of God and it leads you away. Above all, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. Our hearts are God's home. And so to guard our hearts is to guard the king. And guarding the king who guards us is to guard our hearts. Lastly, and this is, uh, this is the, big, the big one, our king is alive. The good news for us is we have a king that can't be killed. <laughs> um, the resurrection, among everything else, teaches us that, you know, we don't, we don't serve, we're not like followers of a spiritual leader, like say Gandhi or something like that, who's gone. But Christianity says we serve a risen king who is now walking with us by our side, who empowers us daily, by whose spirit we live and provides us uh, the power, the very power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us, the scriptures say. 
There's a painting I'm going to show you here. This is by Moritz Rich. It's called The Chess Players. Uh, this painting, you've got uh, on the left here, Satan, in theory. On the right, a very disheveled, uh, sad young man. In the middle, you've got an angel. And then down here, you've got a game of chess going on. Now, you're probably a little far away or, and the, or it's grainy to you to see. Um, but each of these pieces is different. You don't have, it's not like chess where you have all the rooks are the same, the bishops are the same. Every one of these has a, something a little different. And that's why the traditional interpretation of this is uh, this painting represents the victory of vices, all these different vices over the virtues on the right. So that's typically how people see it. It's called, it was renamed Checkmate because uh, on the board positionally from a chess standpoint, the king is in a checkmate position. All right, so about 1863 or so, a fellow was watching this in a museum, looking at it in a museum. He was a chess master, and he realized it's not checkmate after all, actually. That's one. So, but here's why I'm going to tell you why I don't think that's the right way to interpret the painting. But you're right. So the king has one more move is what he says here, where it's like, he does, he has one more move. So even though it looks like checkmate, the chess master sat down and he goes, no, no, no. So they lined it up on a chessboard and they look. And he says, see, look, the king has one more move. And he does. But go with me here. What I notice when I look at this painting, he's out in front. And he's on the board. And he's got his hand out like this. So if you're going with that these are devices over here and you see gargoyle-like things and different, um, you know, you've got like a nude female representing lust and you've got, um, you know, these other things. What about over here? What do we do with a king who's out in front, cross over his shoulder, but, but alive, very much alive, with his hand out like this, almost like he's pushing back the darkness like they can't come any closer? Over here... So many of the virtues and everything lined up as though they've been taken off the board. But he's still on the board. And that is how the Bible sees it. It's not just, it is that he had one more move, and that was against death to rise from the grave. But the, 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 the bigger part, I think, now, today, is what he's doing now. It's not, that's not even just a historical event that took place. It's something that drives every aspect of the Christian life. That king is alive. So when you decide that you're going to go ahead and you're going to make war on whatever it is, if you're going to sanctify yourself, purify yourself, whatever, you're not doing that by yourself and you're not just doing it because God said this. He says it. He's saying it to you. Turn away from that. Repent. Forgive others. All of these things, they're, they're now. They're not then. They're now. And so because of that, because I serve a living king and not somebody who's in the past, not because not just serving somebody who was a historical figure of some kind, yeah, the king had one more move, but he also hasn't stopped moving. He keeps going. And so, sister and brother, I want to invite you to a time of reflection. I want to ask you to pick out something something that you think 
might be throttling you in your walk with the Lord as we gather around the Lord's table. So we're going to take communion at this time. You should have received the, the elements when you walked in. If you didn't and would like some, just put your hand in the air. We'll be happy to bring it to you. We'll remember the living king as we remember the cross, which represents his body and blood that died. We also, that, uh, that he was crucified for and with. We remember him as risen king. And as we do, we go to him. And we invite him to come in and drag the magnet of his holiness over the sand of our hearts and to search us and to give us resolve and resilience in purifying our hearts through his power, through the power of the Spirit. So would you pray with me? And as we do this, let's think about what it is and let's, let's spend this year dethrottling the Spirit's work in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we take bread and cup, we remember that we don't serve a one-time king or a past tense king, but a king that is alive and is working and is still moving. So Lord, I, I want you to just search this room, the hearts of the people in it. Surface things that are hindering us from full abundance. Things that keep us from walking in the fear of the Lord. Things that have gotten a foothold and are causing us to act foolishly, think foolishly, feel foolishly, Father. And we repent of those. We ask, Father, that you give us the strength that the very power that raised Christ from the dead, that spirit, Father, would live in us and work in such a mighty way that he would drive out all things that would hinder us from walking with Jesus to the full. Father, we say with one voice today that you are the most important thing. And if everything else is lost, we will not forfeit our own soul. We will not forfeit our relationship to you. Instead, Father, we will embrace it, walk in it, have passion for it and to let it consume us, Father, so that every moment of every day is lived with the King in mind. We pray this in his name. Amen.